In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Thank you, God, for this day. Please bless us, O Lord, during this hour, and grant us your peace in everything that we do. For the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints here, as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Good evening, everybody. Um, God willing, today we're going to have another Q&A session. If you'd like to submit any questions for any future session, you can do so at the link on the screen. Uh, so we get right into it. First question for today is, how can we practically apply the verse in Psalm 90, verse 12? So let me read this for you. It says, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So how is it that we can understand this verse and what can we learn with it? So when it says, uh, teach us to number our days, what, what does that mean? Numbering our days means to know that we have a limited number of days in our life, right? To know that our life has an end. Uh, it means to remember our mortality. And so here we're saying, like the, the psalmist is asking God to... Uh, teach us to remember our mortality, to remember that our days on earth are limited, um, and so that we would gain a heart of wisdom. The, the, the knowledge that our life has an end is universal, right? Everyone, you know, knows that our life has an end. But some people live according to that knowledge um, and with that understanding, and some people live uh, almost ignoring it. And as though it is not the case that our life has an end. Some people think about how to make best use of the time. And some people don't think of that because they feel like the time is practically endless when with no limit. So what are the benefits? What is this kind of a wisdom that we get when we remember to number our days? Um, there's, there's many. Okay, The first one is when we remember our mortality, we remember that life continues eternally after death. We believe that. Um, life does not end when our earthly life ends, but there is an eternal life. There's a life after this life that we will continue to live and that the end of our bodies here on earth is not the end of our life. Okay, so we believe that there is an eternal life and the, the nature of that eternal life is very, very different than the nature of the physical life that we have now. So when we remember to number our days, when, when we when we always are aware of our mortality, we realize that what you would consider we are living now is not the true life, but it is like a very, very short uh, period of time before our real life begins, okay? And that the, what we do now in this very short period of time has a huge impact on the life that we have to come. So we are re remembering this. We are remembering that, um, that our life continues. It is not that um, whatever I do in this life ceases to have any impact or any effect on the day of my death because I simply disappear. No, actually what I do in this life has a big impact. So we remember that life continues eternally. The second thing that we benefit or that we learn from numbering our days is we remember that the treasure in heaven is not the same as the treasure on earth. The, the things that are valuable, okay, in heaven is not the same as the things that are valuable on earth. The things that we care about here on earth is of one nature and the things that we care about in heaven is another nature. 
and all the things that we care about here on earth um, that our flesh desires and longs after actually doesn't even exist in heaven. It's not even something that, that, that we care about at all in the afterlife. It's, it's not something that, that we seek after. It's not something that's present for us, right? So when we, rem when we remember our, our days, when we remember that our, our, our life is limited, right? We always remember that our values should be the eternal heavenly values and not the earthly values. The things that are important to us, like for instance, money, right? Important here on earth. It is not important eternally. In the, in the broader perspective, it is not important. So when we remember our days and we start thinking about our treasure, what is it that we care about? What treasure do we really seek after? What am I willing to give up in order to attain such a treasure? Okay, we, 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 we make those decisions based on our understanding that our days are limited and not based on the understanding or the belief that our days are endless here on earth. This reminds us of the parable um, that Christ spoke about one of the, the parables of the kingdom, where he spoke about a man who uh, found a treasure in a field, okay? And so he sold all that he had so he could buy the field so that he would get the treasure, right? Because that treasure was so valuable. He sold everything that he had so that he would buy the, the land that had the treasure buried in it, okay? And when you when you look at it from, you know, uh, the perspective of, 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 you know, of, of what's a clever thing to do, you know, like if, if you think about it, even from just the earthly perspective, like, let's say you had, you know, $50,000. Okay. And you find that there is this buried treasure in some piece of land and that buried treasure is worth $10 million. Okay. And so you, you would have to decide, do I want to keep the $50,000 that I have, or do I want to use it to buy the land? And if I buy the land, now I have the $10 million. From, from the perspective, just from a mathematical perspective, from the perspective of investment, right? From someone who is financially savvy, you would definitely do this transaction because what you are gaining is much more than what you are putting in, right? Everyone would agree that that would be the right decision, right? So what Christ is, is saying is that the, 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 the transaction, so to speak, that we are doing, right? Uh, when we speak about heaven is the same thing is that we are giving up something of little value in order to obtain something of very, very high value. And when we remember that our days are numbered, we always remember that this is what's happening, okay? The third benefit of numbering our days is we remember that the, the sinful desires of the flesh prevent us from entering that eternal life. They are a hindrance to us from, from entering that eternal life because the, the war there's a war happening inside each of us between the flesh and the spirit. The flesh wants us to pursue things that are against God, that, that, that are contrary to God, contrary to the word of God, to the commands of God, right? And that in those things that we would pursue, we would lose the eternal life, okay? So our, our desires of the flesh and the temptation that's waged on us by the demons is to pursue a life that is contrary to God. So when again, when we remember that our days are numbered, we realize that the decisions that we make regarding temptation are very, very important decisions because each of those decisions is having an eternal impact on me, right? If I believe that my days are without end, then I don't feel like there's ever really going to come a day of judgment. And I don't really have to think so much about the consequences of the actions that I'm taking. But when I remember that there is an end and there is a judgment, then 
all of a sudden the actions that I take are much weightier, are much more um, important to weigh, okay, what, what is it that I should do in different situations. The fourth benefit of numbering our days is that we remember that Christ was incarnate for our salvation so that we would be redeemed from our sinful nature, right, and attain life. And, and that this redemption is not because of our deserving of it, but because of God's love, right? When we remember that our days are limited, when we remember that there's a day of judgment, when we remember that our actions are going to, to, to affect our eternal life, we find ourselves in a big problem because we are all falling short of the command of God. We all are, are unable to fulfill the command of God, right? And so this is a big deal. This is a big problem. The wages of sin is death. This is what St. Paul says to the Romans, the wages of sin is death. So if, if I look at myself, if I realize that life is limited on earth and I have a fixed amount of time and I realize that I am a sinner, that I am unable to meet the requirements of the commands of God because of my weakness, okay? Now I'm in a big problem, okay? This is what makes us turn to salvation, the idea and the concept of salvation. This is what makes us feel like we are in need of a savior, someone to come and save us from this body of death, to save us from the status of our, of our sinfulness, our weakness, that we are unable to live up to the requirements and the commandments of God. So it is through the incarnation of Christ, through the sacrifice of Christ, that we are um, set free from the requirements of the law. That doesn't mean that we are free to sin, but it means that we become free from sin. It means that we are we are able to, um, to, to be redeemed to God, to be forgiven of our sins, um, and that they are not uh, held over us as before, right? Because Christ paid that for us on our behalf. So we do not deserve now the eternal life, but it is through the mercy of God that we can attain it. And it is through faith in him, through his shedding of his blood, that, that we can attain it. So when we number our days, okay, all of a sudden, the idea of spirituality, the idea of religion, the idea of faith, the idea of salvation, the idea of sacraments, the idea of the, the church becomes far, far more important because I now need all of this in order for me to live. Whereas if the days, if my days on earth are without end and there will never be that day of judgment, then I am not really in need of any salvation because my life continues forever right here on earth. So if we number our days, we realize our weakness, we realize our need for salvation, and we are drawn to God because of what he has done for us, right? Because now it makes sense. It's important what he has done. The fifth um, benefit of numbering our, our days here on earth um, is that we realize that we need to use our time wisely, right? Because the time is limited. I have to decide every moment of every day is, is, is a moment that is, is limited in time. It is it's a moment that will never return again, that I will never get back again. How is it that I should use this time, All right? So it's important for me to always think about what is the best use of my time? How is it that I can spend it to glorify God? How can I spend it to serve people? How can I spend it, you know, in a way that's, that's, that's wise? The sixth uh, benefit of numbering our days is we always remember not to be attached to the things of the earth, right? Whether it be people or things or whatever it is, because we know that we will not have it for long, right? Like if somebody gives us a bar of gold, okay? If we believe that we will possess that bar of gold for the rest of our lives, then maybe we will be very attached to that gold. And maybe we'll be very joyful 
because we've received that gold. Because now with that gold, we can do a lot. Okay. But if somebody gives us a bar of gold and says, you can hold on to this for one minute. Okay. And that's it. Just the one minute. Our hearts really aren't going to be so attached to that gold because, I mean, from the moment we received it, we know that we're just looking at it and someone just gave it to us to look at, but it's not, it doesn't really belong to us, right? It's not, I'm not going to be able to make use of it, right? In the long run, I'm not going to be able to make use of it. The same is true for worldly attachment. When, when we attach ourselves uh, to different things on earth, and when I say attach ourselves, I mean, that we are willing to sacrifice everything else that's important for the sake of that thing, right? We become so attached that it becomes a stumbling block for me. It becomes uh, something that I cannot live without. It becomes something that keeps me from growing in God or doing something good. Um, then we are thinking that this now is going to be ours forever, right? But again, numbering our days, we realize that I'm only going to have the things that I've received on earth for a short time. God gave me these things to benefit from them, but he did not give me these things so that I would become enslaved to them. And so that's why it helps us to fight any kinds of attachment because we realize that these things are not even our own and that we will not keep them forever. Seven, um, another benefit to numbering our days on earth is that we remember to forgive one another because life is short, right? The, 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 the opportunities that we have to interact with one another is limited. It is not forever, right? The, the, the amount of time that we spend in enmity with other people, the amount of time that we spend as enemies, the amount of time that we spend angry and upset um, and hateful toward others, all of this is time wasted because again, time is short. How, how many times do we hear stories about people who um, maybe uh, we're not on good terms with someone and then that person passes away and that they feel like they are now trapped by this feeling that they had the opportunities to reconcile with them and they never did. Um, and and it's, a, it's a difficult struggle, right? When we remember that our days on earth are limited, it makes it much easier to reconcile, to forgive, because we realize that life is too short for us to hold grudges like this against one another. The final point I want to mention about the benefits of numbering our days is that we remember to commune with God as often as we can, because ultimately he is the only thing that matters. He is ultimately the only thing that exists. Everything that exists, exists because of him. Everything that exists, exists because he made it to exist, because he created it to exist. Everything else in the world is changeable. The only thing that will never cease to exist is God himself. The only thing that is unchangeable is God himself, right? Even like in the scripture, when it says, even if heaven and earth pass away, my words will never pass away. Being the truth of God is unchangeable. Even if heaven itself were to pass away, even if every other created thing were to, to ultimately perish and change and, and, and become different, God himself will never change. So when we realize that the only anchor that we have in our reality is God himself, because our life is fickle. Our life is limited. Uh, the reality that we are accustomed to, that we live with day after day is not reliable. It's not something I can count on. I don't even know what the next day will bring to me, okay? But I trust that God is always the same yesterday, today, and forever. So for that reason, I when I when I remember that my days are limited, it causes me to 
desire to commune with God because he is the only anchor. He is the only one that can keep, that is stable, that can bring me stability in my life. If I look at my life around me and I find that everything is crazy and everything is unreliable and everything is, is, is unsustainable and I find that society is fragile and I find that my close friends betray me and I find that um, my job security is limited and I find that my financial security is limited and I find that you know everything that I might potentially want to place my trust in um, fails me and, fail, and, and it's so easy for, for it to fail. But when I remember God's unchanging love, unchanging nature, unchanging goodness, unchanging presence, right? Then he is the one that I want to, uh, to be with, right? So my life itself, I cannot rely on. It. My life itself is short. I cannot rely even on my flesh, on my body. But in God, I can rely. So all these reasons that we mentioned, all reasons why uh, uh, that we should remember our days. So I'll read the verse again. Teach us to remember our day, to, to, sorry, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. All these eight things that I mentioned are things that we can benefit from and wisdom that we can um, learn by numbering our days. <clears throat> Number two, was Potiphar a eunuch? In Genesis 39.1 of the Orthodox Study Bible, it mentions him as a eunuch. However, when reading another version of the Bible, the word eunuch is removed. Also, if he was a eunuch, why was he married? And why was this reason his wife was allowed to have infidelity? So um, let me read for you this verse, Genesis 39, 1. It says, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, this is in the New King James, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. So just as a background um, in this chapter here, so um, Joseph has 11 other brothers, and, and uh, <clears throat> 10 of those brothers are upset with him, and they're jealous of him, and they decide that they're going to sell him into slavery. They sell him into slavery, and he finds himself now in Egypt alone, um, working for this uh, officer of Pharaoh named Potiphar, okay? So here in this verse, it, it, it speaks about when he arrives there, and it says, Potiphar, an, an officer of Pharaoh, he is the captain of the guard, and we know that he is married. Um, and we read about his wife uh, later on. So in the New King James Version, this word, okay, actually it's a Greek word. That's, I'm sure I'm not going to pronounce it right, but um, it's pronounced eunuchos, okay? This Greek word is what is translated officer in some versions of the Bible and translated eunuch in, in other versions of the Bible. Um, so actually the word, Eunuchos uh, can be translated either way. It can mean eunuch and it can mean officer. So what is a eunuch? A eunuch um, can mean someone who is like a, an official, okay? But um, a lot of times the word eunuch is, is meant to refer to a, a servant of like a, of a high official, like a king who has been castrated, okay? Because their responsibility was to oversee like the bedchamber of the king. Like, let's, you know, the kings, let's say they would have a harem, they would have many wives. And so they would want to appoint someone who is castrated, a castrated man. He was emasculated to be able to manage this group of wives so that there would be no possibility of him having sexual, sex, uh, sexual relations with any of them. Okay. So a lot of times uh, eunuchs were employed, okay, for this purpose. Okay. 
Um, Christ speaks about eunuchs, okay? He speaks about them in Matthew 19, 12. Okay, I'm going to read it for you. He says, for there are eunuchs who are born thus from their mother's womb. Okay, so here he speaks about someone who was born with a deformity, that they were, um, they, they were without like male genitalia from their mother's womb. Okay, they were impotent from their mother's womb. They were born this way. And there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men. Okay, these are the ones that were castrated, right? Maybe for the purpose of a service, like the one we mentioned, okay? And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Here, this is not speaking about someone who castrates themselves. It's speaking about someone who chooses to remain celibate, right? And unmarried uh, for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Like what we consider like uh, monastics, for instance, would be those who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. So, so Christ spoke about these three uh, types of eunuchs, okay? What would be considered the ones that were born that way, the ones that were made that way, and the ones that chose to live celibate, even though biologically they're, they're fine, okay? Um, we also know about Potiphar, okay, that he was the captain of the guard, okay? He was not a keeper of the bedchamber, like what most eunuchs that are castrated in that sense would be. He was a captain of the guard, and we know also that he was married, okay? Um, so in, in, in that sense, um, there's a lot of evidence to show that, um, that, that he's, he's not a eunuch in the sense of, of the castrated type of eunuch, but he's a eunuch in the sense of a servant of the king. Okay. But interestingly, when I was like researching this, okay, there is a, uh, an opinion uh, in the Jewish Talmud. The Talmud is the, is like a collection of Jewish teachings, which is kind of like the, the tradition of the Jewish faith, okay? So this is an ancient document, okay? Um, so what I'm about to read for you is just to kind of give you an idea of some of the other thoughts on this, okay? I'm not saying that our church believes this um, because uh, because this is, again, from, from the Jewish documents, but I, I just thought it was interesting to see how the Jewish people interpret the, the who Potiphar is um, and, and what was his role, okay? Um, so in Genesis 41, 45, okay, in the Bible, um, this is at the time when Joseph is made the second in command of Egypt, okay? Pharaoh gives him a wife. His wife's name is Asenath, okay? We read this, it says, and he gave him as a wife Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. Okay, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So this is what the Talmud says about this, okay? It says, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's, brought him, meaning Joseph, okay? He brought him for himself. That is for his own sexual purposes. So what this is saying is that um, Potiphar was actually uh, a homosexual, okay? And he actually was sexually abusing Joseph, okay? But the angel Gabriel came and castrated him. And then Gabriel came and mutilated him. For originally his name is written Potiphar, but afterwards Potiphera. Okay. So according to what the Talmud is saying, the Talmud is saying that Potiphar used to be uh, married and, and like normal. Okay. Uh, but because he was sinning against Joseph in this way, that uh, Archangel Gabriel uh, castrated him as a result. And 
as a kind of way of mocking him, the people uh, began to change his name from Potiphar to Potiphera. And at the time, uh, people who were idol worshiper priests, okay, like pagan priests um, who were castrated were considered like given positions of honor because it's like they have chosen to live this type of lifestyle of the priesthood. And so um, according to the, this understanding is that Potiphar chose to leave his position as captain of the guard to become a priest, okay? And his name now is Potiphera. They, they named him that. Um, and that would have been a position of honor for him because he was castrated, okay? Um, and that once Joseph was promoted, okay, Potiphar, Potiphera in this case, would still hold a grudge against uh, Joseph. So Pharaoh wanted uh, to give Potiphar's daughter and Joseph to marriage so that Potiphar would be forced to support him, okay? Now, again, I'm not saying that we in the church uh, abide by this understanding, okay? But it's interesting to see the Jewish explanation for the idea of Potiphar being a eunuch, okay? Um, it's very likely that the word eunuch is just referring to someone who is an official um, and not to the, the, the castrated type of, of eunuch. But in the end, we don't have a, a complete understanding or know for sure um, what, what it was. It's just the idea that Potiphar is married would disqualify him from being a eunuch in that way. Um, uh, but this Jewish explanation seeks to explain why, how it could be that he was at one point married and had a daughter in this case, and then became um, a eunuch afterward. Number three. There is a saying by Abba Anthony the Great, which says, do not speak about all your thoughts with all people, except those who have the ability to save your soul. Could you please elaborate more on that quote? Um, so, uh, so Anthony here is speaking about being wise with whom we decide to share our thoughts. Okay. Um, you know, if we share our thoughts or secrets with a foolish person, right, it might have a detrimental effect on us. But if we share them with a wise person, it will have a positive effect, right? So do not speak about all your thoughts with all people, right? Maybe we have been in situations where uh, we shared some information that we shouldn't have with certain people and it came back and hurt us in one way or the other, okay? What are some ways that if we share our thoughts with a foolish person, um, it could it could harm us. Number one, they might mock us. Maybe we, we know situations where we we share some private information or we share some thoughts with somebody um, who's not very wise, and they just insult us or mock us for what it is that we are thinking, okay, or what it is that we upset. Okay, and one, um, two, uh, they could uh, mislead us. Maybe they tried to give us bad advice um, because they are not wise. And they lead us down a path that we shouldn't go. Okay, another reason not to share our thoughts with them. Uh, three, they might use it against us, meaning someone who is kind of uh, an evil person might take some of the thoughts or secrets or ideas that we have and try to use them against us. Um, four, they might tell us what we want to hear. So instead of giving us wise advice, um, maybe contradicting what we are thinking. Uh, pushing back a little bit against what we want to do. Um, they just, for the sake of being kind of what they are considering to be friends, they're just going to tell us what we want to hear and encourage us in whatever we want to do without kind of 
uh, stopping us from doing, making a mistake, perhaps. Um, they might judge us, right? They might, they might um, look down at us because of something that we have done or, or, or something that we are thinking, okay? Um, they might share our thoughts to other people, right? Not keep it a secret. Um, Proverbs 11, 13, it says, a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is of a faithful spirit conceals a matter, right? So maybe this person uh, is a foolish, he's a talebearer. He's someone who likes to spread gossip. He likes to spread information. He likes to show that he has a lot of information and knows things about people, right? So maybe, maybe that's another problem of sharing something with uh, uh, a foolish person, okay? But if we share with a wise person, okay, which is what St. Anthony is speaking about, okay, only share with those who have the ability to save your soul, they might give us good advice, um, they might share their own experience, like sometimes we feel like we are alone in a certain experience or a certain situation, um, and we feel trapped by it and alone in it, but maybe we speak to someone who has had that experience in the past, and they're able to share their experience with us, and it makes us feel like we are not alone and maybe we can you know have a better idea of how to navigate it because we hear the experiences of another person um they can correct us if we are going down the wrong path they're wise um they might warn us about things to expect in the future so we can prepare for them um they might tell us if uh you know if our ideas uh you know are 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 kind of self-delusioning self-deluding like we're deluding ourselves by having these thoughts whatever the thoughts might be so in every way, we have to be very careful what, who we share our mind with, right? And this is why in the church, um, you know, we, we have the fathers of confession that um, our experience that are trustworthy, that you can share your thoughts with, and they will give you advice in an objective way. I'm not telling you what you want to hear, uh, but, but also encouraging, you know, people to pursue like a good path. So St. Anthony is saying that we should be wise and careful with who we should share our thoughts with. These are the counselors that can save our souls. Number four, what is the meaning of lead us not into temptation? So this is the part of the Lord's Prayer, uh, the prayer that Christ taught the apostles to pray when they asked him to teach them to pray. And part of the prayer that we pray very commonly is lead us not in temptation. So the question is, what does it mean when we ask God to lead us not into temptation, okay? I'm gonna read for you an excerpt here from, from the writings of St. Cyril of Jerusalem because he comments here on it and then we'll speak about what he says, okay? So he says, and lead us not into temptation, Lord. Is the Lord teaching us to ask that we never be tempted? But how could we then read elsewhere the man who has been tempted has not been tested. Sorry, the man who, ha the man who um, has not been tempted has not been tested. This is in Sirach 34.10. And again, regard it as a supreme joy, my brethren, that you are subject to all kinds of temptations. This is in James 1 verse 2. So, so here St. Cyril is saying, if the idea of asking God lead us not to temptation means that we're asking God that we never want to be tempted, okay, in any way, then how is it in other places it's saying that those who have not been tempted have not been tested and that those, and that we should be, be joyful when we enter all kinds of temptations, okay? 
But then, does entering into temptation mean being submerged by temptation? Temptation is in fact comparable to a torrent that is difficult to cross. A torrent like maybe like a very strong river, okay? That is difficult to cross. Those who are not submerged by temptations pass through them. They are excellent swimmers and the temptations have no power to drag them down. But when those who do not have the same qualities enter the stream, they are swallowed up. Judas is an example. He entered into the temptation of avarice, which is greed. He did not pass through it, but was swallowed up and perished body and soul. Peter entered into the temptation of denial. He entered, but was not swallowed up. He swam nobly and was saved from the temptation. So one thing to note here is that the word temptation can have a dual meaning, okay? It can refer to temptation like we are tempted by to do some sin. We are tempted to fall into sin, okay? Um, another meaning of the word is a trial. Like we are passing through some difficult trial, which is a temptation, okay? We call that also a temptation. So God allows us to experience temptation, all right? Even though God does not tempt us himself, right? Because it says God does not tempt anyone. But God allows us to experience various trials in the world. Like God does not send calamity on us. God does not send destruction on us. But God allows us to experience calamities uh, that are in the world due to the sinful nature of the world, due to the corruption that is in the world, due to the sins of other people due to many reasons that there are uh, trials and difficulties in the world, okay? God allows us to experience those things. And then he turns those experiences into something for our benefit. So it's not that God makes us to be sick or God uh, makes us to fall into sin or God makes us to have some, you know, catastrophe happen, but he allows us to experience the things that are naturally happening in the world, okay? Um, it's only then when we go through these trials that we can know ourselves, that we can learn about ourselves, that we can gauge our faith, that we can grow from the experiences that we have, that we can learn to seek the grace of God to overcome the, the difficulties that we have and that we feel like we are in need of God, right? Because I am always being challenged, okay? So God allows us to experience trials to help to transform us, right? To make us to be more Christ-like. And this is the benefit of temptation, right? This is the benefit of trial, okay? And this is what St. Cyril is saying. St. Cyril is saying, if we are asking God, when we say, lead us not into temptation, if we are asking him, saying, we never want to experience any trial, we never want to experience any difficulty, we want to, we want to never experience any temptation, okay? And that kind of contradicts what, for instance, St. James is saying when he's saying regard it as joy when you are subject to kinds, all kinds of temptations, okay? Because we know that these temptations can result in good things, okay? But what St. Cyril is saying is what we are asking God not to allow us to be consumed by these trials, not to allow us to be submerged, destroyed, to fall in the midst of the trials. This is what we are asking. Okay, um, a verse that speaks about uh, like the benefits of temptation in Psalm 66, verse 10, it says, for you, O God, have tested us. You have refined us as a silver is refined. You brought us into the net. You laid affliction on our backs. You have caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but you brought us out to rich fulfillment, right? This is like 
the, 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 the beauty of the outcome of the trial is that even though God has allowed all of those things to happen, that we are tried in the fire, and yet God brings us out to rich fulfillment. Um, so we are asking God again, not to be submerged or overcome by temptations. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it speaks about this point. Um, St. Paul is saying, no temptation has overtaken you, except such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So we are asking God to grant us the way of escape. We are asking God to allow us to experience temptations, yes, but to allow us to come out of those temptations stronger than we were before and not to be destroyed, submerged in the torrents, like what St. Cyril of Jerusalem is saying, and never to be able to come out. The difference, again, between Judas, who went into temptation and could not come out, and Peter, who went into temptation, but it says what he swam nobly and was saved from the temptation, according to what St. Cyril said. So that's what we mean when we're asked, saying, God, lead us not into temptation. Number five, can you help explain the chronological order between Ezra and Haggai? My confusion is that they both seem to have built the temple, but at different times. So a little background. Um, so who is Ezra? So Ezra was a scribe, okay? Uh, and he was living in Babylon, okay? Uh, in the seventh year of the King Artaxerxes. This is about 457 BC or so, okay? Um, uh, and the king sent him to, uh, the, to Jerusalem to teach the laws of God to any who did not know them, okay? So Ezra, he led like a large group of the people to return, this is the people back from the exile to Jerusalem, right? So, so this, is, this is the time when God had taken uh, and allowed uh, uh, the, the, the Babylonians, okay, under King Nebuchadnezzar to take all of the the, the, the Judeans, those are from the kingdom of Judah, captive, okay? They stayed there for 70 years captive. And now at the end of the 70 years, there are groups of people returning again. So Ezra was one of those who was returning uh, in one of these groups that are returning, okay? Um, we read in Ezra 3, verse 8, okay, um, regarding uh, the, the house of God, regarding the temple. Uh, it, it says, now in the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of captivity to Jerusalem, began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. So this is, they're doing what? They're rebuilding the temple because the temple had been destroyed, okay, when they were taken captive, here they are starting to work on the rebuilding of the temple. So here in Ezra 3, uh, 8, this was the beginning of the work. This was about in the year 536 BC at this point. Okay, 536 BC. This is 70 years after the, fir the, the first exile had happened. So this is like laying the foundation of the temple. The, the prophecy of Haggai, Haggai the prophet, okay, occurs in Jerusalem as well. Okay, so now it is, it is in Jerusalem about 520 BC, which is about 16 years later after this. So 16 years after the beginning of the build of the rebuilding of the temple, 
God was rebuking the people because the temple still had not been completed. Okay. And, and he was essentially rebuking them saying, you guys are living in paneled houses and, and nice places to live. And you are leaving the temple still not complete. This is in Haggai chapter one, right? When it says, then the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Okay. So again, this is 16 years after they began that was recorded in Ezra. So they continued the work. Okay, and the, the continuing of the work is recorded in Haggai 1, verse 14 and 15. It says, so the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of, Ju of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month and the second year of King Darius. Okay, so they're now working again. Okay. Uh, and then finally, in the year 515 BC, which is about five years later, the temple was completed. Okay, and we read about this completion back in Ezra. So this is why I was confusing, because Ezra chapter three, they start the building. Haggai chapter one, they continue the building. And then Ezra chapter six, they finish the building. So both of these are speaking about uh, intertwined periods of time, like overlapping periods of time, which is why like it can be kind of confusing to, 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 pull, to pull out what's happening where. So Ezra, six, uh, Ezra chapter six, verse 14, it says, so the elders of the Jews built and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet and Zechariah, the son of Edo, and they built and finished it, the temple, according to the commandment of God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Okay, so that's the, the order there uh, between Ezra and Haggai. Number six, would you please explain the verse in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7? Okay, um, so I'm going to read to give context to this. I'm going to read from verse 7 all the way through verse 10, because it gives us kind of understanding, a better understanding of it, okay? So it says, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will, this is St. Paul speaking Corinthians. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Sorry, I'm starting with verse one, actually. This is going all the way from verse one to verse 10. Um, how he was caught up into the paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one, I will boast. Yet of myself, I will not boast, except in infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool. For I will speak the truth, but I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord uh, three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Okay, so that's a lot of text. Okay, what are we talking about? So um, the question is asking specifically about verse seven, okay, which is, and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure, okay? What is this whole passage speaking about? So St. Paul, when he was speaking to the Corinthians, he found it necessary to defend his position as an apostle, okay? Why? Because people were arguing against him that he was not a rightful apostle because he was not one of the original apostles during the time of the life of Christ. Remember, he became an apostle, um, a convert to Christianity from Judaism after the resurrection. All of the other apostles were apostles from when Christ was still alive on earth. Okay, so there were enemies of St. Paul who were against him. And there were different factions of people in the city of Corinth. And some people did not consider him to be a legitimate apostle. But he was the one who came and established the church in Corinth. So when he is speaking to the Corinthians, he's speaking to them the words of salvation. He wants them to, to follow what he is saying, not because they are his own words or his own invention, but these are this is the way of salvation for them. Okay, So he wants them to listen to what he has to say. So he always found it necessary for him to defend his apostleship to them in all kinds of different ways so that they would believe his message. And here he was warning them against false teachers because there was other false teachers and false apostles who were coming to preach to them and they were contradicting his ministry. Okay. And they were teaching the people wrong things. Okay. And so in order for him to have credibility, Okay, in order to preach and in order to contradict and defend the faith against these teachers, he would be speaking about himself, uh, about his accomplishments, about who he is, about things that have happened to him, about how much he has given him his life up to the service, all these things that he would speak about. And he would speak about it not because he was boasting about those things, but he wanted the people to believe. Okay, so he's always, anytime that he, you, you hear about St. Paul, like essentially boasting of his own accomplishments or who he is or stuff that's happened. He's always doing it very reluctantly. And he's always doing it. Like even when he says about himself that he feels like he is a fool speaking the way that he is speaking, right? His goal is not to defend himself, but his goal is the salvation of the people, right? So he, he considered it necessary for the sake of their salvation to bring up these points. So one of the points that he brings up and mentions, okay, to defend his apostleship and to defend like his, his, his like the, the idea that God is revealing to him the truth and that he is preaching the truth is he revealed this event that happened to him, which is that he was taken to heaven, to paradise uh, and saw a vision, right? This is why at the beginning it says, um, uh, when he says what, I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, okay? Um, uh, uh, someone who was taken, uh, uh, was caught up to the third heaven. He speaks about it in a third person. So he's speaking it as though it's happening to somebody else, but it's actually happening to him, okay? It says he was caught up into the paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one, I will boast, 
yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. Okay. Then he goes on to say, okay, and this is in verse 7 now, the verse that's being asked about in the question. Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, which is the abundance of the vision, the miracle that happened, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. So in addition to revealing that he has received these visions of heaven, okay, again, in order to defend his apostleship, defend of his credibility, okay, he said that God gave him a thorn, okay? A thorn is like an ailment, like a weakness. God gave him something that was a weakness in order to why, and he says what? Lest I should be exalted above measure. The idea that if St. Paul is seeing these visions of heaven, lest he fall into this extreme pride and feeling of his, like that he is almost like an angel living on earth, that he is seeing visions of heaven and all this, in order to like bring him down to earth, in order to keep him grounded, God gave him a weakness in his flesh, right? So this is a thorn in the flesh, in order to make St. Paul always feel weak. And then the, 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 this weakness, right, that St. Paul uh, received, okay, he didn't want it, okay, that's why he says in verse 8, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me, and the Lord responded, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness, okay, so then he goes on and says, I will boast in my infirmities, right, that the power of Christ may rest upon me, so God gave him this infirmity, so that he would always feel in need and weak, so that the power of God like would work in him. Like he would feel like I'm not accomplishing anything in my own strength. It is through the power of God. We believe like in the church, like one of the opinions um, is that this ailment that he received was a problem with his vision, that he had a difficult time seeing um, and made it, of course, difficult because of all of his travels, because of his ministry, because of all of his writings. It would be difficult because he cannot see very well. And so this was a means by which God helped to keep him to be humble. And so St. Paul is revealing this to the Corinthians and saying, yes, I have seen the visions and yes, I do this, but God has placed in me this, uh, this thorn in order to uh, humble me and to keep me like humble and not to be exalted. Number seven, I got married very recently and I got pregnant shortly after my wedding. At first, I was very excited when I knew that I'm pregnant, but I heard a lot of discouraging comments from my friends, like you didn't give yourself the chance to enjoy your marriage. It's too early for this responsibility. You should have waited a few years, etc. Now I feel discouraged and afraid of having a baby. I know that being a mother is something that other women pray for years for, and I had it easily, which makes me feel guilty about my negative feelings, yet I can't overcome them. How can I be happy again, despite the negative comments that I heard? Um, so this idea of family planning, okay, which is what we call it. Um, family planning means that couples plan uh, when they want to have kids, how many kids they want to have, how many years separate between the kids. And of course, you know, 
couples can think through all of the pros and cons of all these things. Some people want to have more kids. Some people want to have less. Some people want to have them earlier. Some of the people want to have them later. And everybody has an opinion about what they think is the best. Okay. Um, we like being in control. We like deciding for ourselves the details of our lives, um, especially ones uh, that have like such a big impact on us, you know, like, like the, the, the kids that we have. Um, but, you know, if you, if you give, if God gives us the opportunity to decide for ourselves, there's a lot of decisions that we would make for ourselves all the time. Um, but many times God does not give us the chance to make such a decision to express our will because he knows better than us. Okay. Even couples that do their best to do the family planning, Sometimes they are, have kids that they were not expecting or they want to have kids and they can't have kids. Um, so the idea that maybe from a human perspective, from a human mind, we can think, well, it's good to have time at the beginning of a marriage without kids for various reasons. That's from a human perspective. But if God like decides that this is not what he wants, if from, the, from, from his mind, he says, no, it's better for you, for this particular couple to have kids earlier, who are we to stand in front of him and say, no, this is not right. This is not good. You know, you know a, lot of, a lot of times we think that we are the ones in control, but actually he is the one in control, especially when it comes to things like having children. You know, how many times have people wanted to have children and could not? You know, it's, it's not just a simple matter where people decide to have kids and now they're having kids. You know, maybe some people have that experience, but a lot of people do not. And a lot of people, it takes a long time for them to be able to have kids. So this is what I'm trying to say is don't think that you are the one who decided this. You know, don't think that you're the one who, you know, made a mistake or something like that. God is the one who decided this. God is the one who allowed this. God is the one who wanted this to happen. So um, don't feel like what the comments that you're hearing are accurate or right in any way all of this is coming from God and not from man, right? Don't worry about this. Trust that God like has this plan for you in your life and that there are reasons that are very good that this is happening now. Maybe we don't understand those reasons. Maybe we don't know why in the plan of God that something having something like this at this point in time is the best thing, but maybe one day we will know, right? And whether we, we, we will know one day or not, we trust that God is managing our life as he deemed fit. We pray this in the liturgy, you know, manage our life as deemed fit. However you want my life to go, let it be so. If God felt that it was not right or good for you to have kids at this time, then you wouldn't have had kids. You know, it was as simple as that, right? So sometimes we think that we're in a lot more control than we really are, okay? Um, so don't worry about this. Um, it's it's a joyful thing to have to have kids and you know be be joyful for the gift that god has given you don't compare yourselves to other people i don't think that you've missed out on anything um god god will provide you everything um in its due time okay this will be the last question why do men and women sit separately in the church um so the separation of the sexes in the church this was a universal christian custom all the way from the beginning of the church, uh, all the way through to the Protestant Reformation. This was something that was practiced by all the churches everywhere in the world, okay? So this custom even existed among many of the Protestant churches up until the last century, right? Um, the early church fathers 
they viewed the separation of the sexes during the religious practices as an appreciation of the natural order in the sense that every category of person, not just based on sexes, had like a separate place for them to be in the church, right? This was viewed as a positive thing, right? Uh, the men in one place, the women in one place, the deacons in one place, the bishop in one place, the priests in one place, even the monks would be in one place, the nuns would be in a place, the sisters would be in a place. And there were other ranks actually of people who were under discipline of the church. Like there's those who are called the kneelers, there's those who are called the mourners, people who had like been disciplined by the church because of something that they had done. Each one of those groups of people would be in one place. The catechumens, which are the people who are learning the faith in order to... Um, to, to, to be baptized, they also had their own place, you know, nowadays, everything is all like mixed up, right, but, but in the, in the early days, uh, not just in the very early days, but for a long time, for over a thousand years, you know, for more than that, um, the, the, everyone in the church had their own place, right, to be a, universally, universally in the church and the whole world, right, this is not a, a Coptic thing, or even an Orthodox thing, this is something that Many, many, many churches, even Protestant churches have, okay? Everything in its place. The Apostolic Constitutions is one of the early writings of Christianity, right? It says that the Christians were segregated not only by sex, but uh, by age, um, by vocation, so on. St. Cyril of Jerusalem, he says, for though the ark, he's referring to Noah's ark, for though the ark was one and the door was shut, Yet he had things been suitably, uh, sorry, yet had things been suitably, be, suitably arranged. If the church is shut and you are all inside, yet let there be separation, men with men, women with women, lest the pretext of salvation become an occasion of destruction. Um, in the early writings of the church, the separation of the sexes was seen um, as it could also be a safeguard against sexual temptation. Um, and the, the, the mixing of the sexes wasn't something that was done uh, as casually as it is nowadays, okay? Actually, at the time, there were also like wooden partitions that would be separating the aisles of the church so that you could not even look over on the other side of the church. It's like completely like quarantined off. Um, St. John Chrysostom, he says, it were meet, meaning fitting, it were, it were fitting indeed that you had within you the wall to part you from the women. But since you are not so minded, our fathers thought it necessary by these boards, the wooden partitions to wall you off. Since I hear from the elder ones that of old, there were not so much as these partitions for in Christ Jesus, there is neither male nor female. And in the apostles time also men and women were together because the men were men and the women were, were the women women. But it is now altogether the contrary. The women have urged themselves into the manners of courtesans, but the men are in no better state than frantic horses. Saying, he's saying what it used to be the case in the church, St. John Chrysostom is saying, where um, people were to mind their business and not to be so distracted, right, in the church and everyone was focusing. But now the problem he's describing is there were, for instance, women who would come with the desire to be attractive to men and the way that they would dress, for instance, um, and, and, and men also were like, uh, you know, in the state, like frantic horses, like what he's saying, like they were, they were on the hunt for women, essentially. So um, it was seen as better to place separation between the men and the women to avoid this from happening. 
and I certainly, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that we need to have the wooden partitions, but the idea of not being distracted in the prayer and being everyone standing in their own place, um, I know maybe for some, this is not an issue, but for some, maybe it is um, nowadays. St. Hippolytus um, in the Apostolic Constitutions as well, okay, they both specify the kiss of peace, okay, the, the, the kiss of peace that we give in, to each other in the church is not to be exchanged between men and women. And in the apostolic traditions written in the, before the year 230, St. Hippolytus delivered the following instructions for the catechumens. He says, and let the women stand praying by themselves in another part of the church, whether they be faithful women or let the faithful indeed greet each other, the men with the men and the women with the women, but let the men not greet the women. As you can easily see that the distinguished custom of separate seating dates back to the early church and has been faithfully practiced by the Orthodox Church since its conception. Um, so the, the idea here is one of order. And whether you consider that part of that order is um, lack of distraction, um, lack of sexual temptation, or whatever the case might be, it's always been the case in the church that every group of people was together and like it was mentioned by St. Cyril of Jerusalem, if you liken the church to the ark, to Noah's ark, um, because the church is the ark of salvation, just as in the ark, everything was in order and every animal was together with their own kind and so on, you can say also that in the church, every group of people is, is in their own place. But what I want to emphasize is this was a universal practice. This is something that was done in the church all throughout history. This isn't something that was adopted only by the Coptic church um, and it was even practiced by the Protestant church um, for a long time um, as well. Um, someone is saying what I meditated that since the liturgy is the likeness of heaven and that there is no marriage in heaven, then there is separate, uh, then there is separation in the church. Okay, that's all the time that we have for today. Um, thank you everybody for joining. Um, let's just conclude in a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. Thank you, God, for your goodness and your patience with us. Teach us your ways, O Lord. Grant us to celebrate the coming feast of the Nativity with joy, and to remember, O Lord, your birth, to remember your presence in our lives, and to remember, O Lord, that you are our Redeemer that saves us, O Lord, from the bondage of the enemy. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, Here's as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a good night.